The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday morning, everybody. You're watching Squawkbox with Karen Cho. You've got Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. Here's your headlines. The Nikkei leads sharp declines across Asia after Wall Street posts its worst week since October, with markets continuing their post-Fed slump amid a more hawkish shift. UK supermarket Morrison's bracing for a bidding war as a US private equity firm reportedly continues its pursuit of the British grocer after the group rejects a $5.5 billion takeover attempt. Bill Ackman's SPAC buys a 10% stake in Vivendi's Universal Music Group for $4 billion as shareholders prepare to vote on the spin-off and listing set for September. HSBC posts its worst day in nine months after taking a $2.3 billion hit on the sale of its French retail bank as Europe's largest lender sells the troubled unit for just one euro. And France's far-right parties win fewer votes than expected in regional elections amid record low turnout, while President Macron's party comes fifth. I want to take you to some of the action we witnessed on Wall Street Friday before we wrapped up for the weekend because uh, what we had last week, midweek, the uh, Fed and J-Pal effectively unsettling markets with this commentary around a taper program and what's going to happen down the track with interest rates, the signaling around a, a normalization eventually had markets spooked from where they had been prior to the meeting and effectively all those reflation trades, very hot areas of the market that investors have been bidding up this year were left to the side and you saw fairly strong moves on the back of the Fed as a result. So uh, in terms of the Dow, 1.6% down. You could see that was the steepest sell-off we had of the three major indices. Over the course of the trading week, also down almost 3.5%. So areas, for instance, are banking stocks uh, that were sold off in Goldman Sachs again, one of the big drivers for the Dow. And for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, also a reversal there as well, you could see, but not as much. In fact, if you just compare over the course of the trading week, uh, the NASDAQ was down just uh, a third of a percent. So barely anything versus uh, that uh, fairly seismic shift in the Dow, which tells you about the resilience that you also witnessed in some of the technology names versus other areas of the market. Just a, a little comparison, by the way, if you took a look at the, the KBE, the, the banking index, it was down over the weeks by 6.9%, a fairly sizable move when you talk about near on 7% shift in banks versus the FANG stocks actually gained by 1.2%. So there was a real repositioning on the back of the Fed. Also worth noting, uh, small cap stocks, uh, Russell 2000, heaviest weekly loss since late January. Uh, the other part of the market too, Dow Jones Transport, that's where you saw some action. It is down 9% now from its 52-week high. One other key component of the market has been this repricing around Treasuries. We set the scene before the FMC last week that there would be some technical repositioning, just how traders had been set up around this tenure in particular. And you can see now we've pulled back at uh, this uh, tenure yield 1.37% and uh, a lot of movement towards that short end instead. So uh, investors are very concerned now about that outlook and adjusting portfolios uh, around the Fed. Let's get out to Matthew Taylor for more on the Asian markets and how they're shaping up the Monday session. Matt, uh, good morning to you. What are you witnessing? 
Hi there, Karen. Well, we are seeing a really negative session uh, right across markets in the Asia Pacific today. Uh, as you can see, with the exception of uh, the mainland China markets, a little bit of strength there coming through for the Shenzhen market. Shanghai just back from the lunch break, uh, weaker. Uh, but of course, seeing money going into US treasuries, the US dollar really denting sentiment here uh, in Asia as well. Uh, some of the heavyweight markets, Australia down by about 1.6%. Uh, we're seeing Singapore down by about 1.3%. South Korea off by about 1%. Uh, but the biggest falls being witnessed in the Japanese market, well, we are seeing the Nikkei off by about 3.5% or about 1,000 points. We were down by about 4% earlier on. So managing to recoup some of those losses, still sitting at a one-month low on the Nikkei. The dollar, yen, uh, 109. So we are seeing a bit of a strengthening there. Hong Kong, uh, just back from the lunch break as well. Let's give you a look there. We are seeing the Hang Seng uh, looking uh, weaker by about 1.3%. And HSBC selling down sharply on the back of selling that French retail business uh, to Cerberus with a $2.3 billion hit on the sale. That stock, the worst in nine months, off by about 4%. Back to you now. In London. Thank you very much for that. Uh, the European markets, in context, then on the back of what we've witnessed, they played catch up Friday session. We've seen a level of resilience in uh, the trade during the week, but then uh, as uh, Friday hit and as investors took stock of some of that US action, also we saw a retreat here. So the FTSE down 1.9% and stripping back uh, a lot of the early gains we've witnessed uh, down 1.6% for the week. You can see the morning we are chasing again red arrows today. Other markets that have been more resilient, uh, for instance, the German market, the DAX, it's called down by triple-digit points at this stage over the course of the week, down roughly 1.5-plus percent. Morning, Karen. How are you? Good morning. Well, thank you. How good, are you? Good, good. Did you have a lovely weekend? Yeah, it was nice. Despite the, the rain, uh, the wet weather that's set in over well, here. You, it didn't work for you because you <laughs> had your sports day for your, uh, your, right. your daughter called right. off, but it worked for me because I didn't have to have the camping. <laughs> which, exactly. is a, which is a bit of relief for me, I can assure you. Sleeping in my own bed for a couple of nights. Uh, right, let's move on. The Federal Reserve could hike rates as soon as 2022 as inflation continues to pick up. That's according to the St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, who told CNBC prices are running higher than expected. Uh, Bullard's comments come days after the FOMC projected their first rate hikes would now be in 2023. Mr. Bullard added that the Fed would be cautious when it does decide to slow the path. I don't know what that means. That slow the path of asset purchase. I, I think I mean pace. I think our producers had a little bit of a, a hiccup there. Let's listen in. I do know from past discussions on the committee that it's quite a complicated thing. There are lots of moving pieces in a taper. Uh, the pace, uh, you've got MBS versus Treasuries, uh, when do you start, uh, how state contingent is the taper. I think these are all key factors here. In the 2013-2014 taper, we went on automatic uh, pilot and didn't do much. We, we said that there would, you know, we would react to incoming data. And, you know, I think, to be fair, I think we didn't really have to in 2014. But this time around, I mean, look at this data. Look at how uh, outsized all these numbers are and, and how volatile everything has been. Uh, I think we're going to have to be more state contingent than we have been in the past. The committee has a regular review of the uh, state of uh, froth, I guess you would say, or the, uh, uh, the idea that there might be market excesses. Uh, we've gotten much better at that over the last decade than we were before the global financial crisis. Um, so we do have regular discussions. It is a, a topic and it has been a perennial topic ever since the irrational exuberance speech uh, way back in 1996. So um, I, I do think we have our eye on this. 
Mr. Bullard there. Well, let's uh, talk about some of the other Fed speakers who've been out there. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashgari has issued a more dovish outlook saying interest rates should remain on hold until at least 2023. Speaking to Reuters, uh, Kashgari said he wants to see maximum employment before considering tightening monetary policy. Kashkari is a non-voting member of the FOMC this year. Well, this was a, a frustrating turn of events, I think, because all of a sudden I'm reading lots of copy uh, with people talking about, well, how they already saw the signs that there was going to be a, a shift from the Federal Reserve. But I don't think um, in hindsight, that it was very obvious that there was going to be uh, what looked like a, a significant handbrake turn in the market context uh, from the previous indicators. Yes, we had uh, some surveys like the Bank of America survey of fund managers suggesting managers now think we're mid-cycle rather than early cycle. And of course, Absolute Strategy had a, a terrific uh, piece looking at earnings prospects and suggesting that uh, the market was now tweaking down expectations around earnings. The impetus of the uh, opening up consumption had already uh, taken place and maybe a lot of the reopening stocks have had a good run already. So there are all those kind of suggestions. And then um, a Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, who's about the only person I've heard who actually called a shift in the narrative in this latest meeting, uh, said he felt that inflation indicators had just been running way ahead of what even the various Fed uh, presidents had um, expected them to indicate. So it was likely that there would be a shift in tone. About the only consensus I can really find uh, from the various commentators at the moment is that they think the more meaningful discussion about tapering has yet to take place and it probably won't come until we get to the Jackson Hole Symposium. But it is clear how nervous the uh, markets are already about the prospect of uh, higher interest rates leave it to my old friend at um, High Frequency Economics to make the point that we can still have uh, lower uh, trend rates globally, even as tapering talk starts a la 2014. So very difficult at this point, I think, to draw out uh, the nuances of whatever the various asset class moves are going to be here on the back of this uh, latest shift from the Federal Reserve. I guess what we do know at this point is markets are taking this as a negative sign for stocks. Jeff, I don't think it's a surprise where we ended up. We were talking for weeks, really, that the market was looking for a fresh catalyst, either to the upside or downside. It just so happens it was to the downside here. And effectively, you know, what the Fed was telling investors, uh, this is uh, a little bit of a, a sketch of the roadmap from here. And so they've had to shuffle those portfolios. We'd had a very dovish Fed, a very positive backdrop around fiscal spending, and the markets had a lot of green signals. But uh, that just started to turn slightly uh, in that session uh, last week. Uh, worth noting too, well, we had a, a great report from DataTrek uh, that was uh, basically just flagging up the tech as the only reason the S&P 500 has posted a positive 1.4% return in the last month. And I was just pointing out what the FANG stocks did last week versus the banks. The description here is that uh, you've got a growth scare and their advice was that you need to lighten up in the face of, of this type of market behaviour. That's what you're witnessing. 
just a, a bridge to the, the data and some of the uh, commentary you're seeing from companies. We know it's uneven, and we were talking the other week about lumber prices, how they've now effectively fallen off a cliff, having run up so aggressively. There are anomalies in that data, and American Airlines, uh, you know, one of the hot areas of inflation the other week we were talking about was the transportation sector, that Americans were hopping onto planes, catching up with family, friends, going to destinations across the states because they, they can again, and that's created a spike in prices. So what does a major airline do on the back of it? It cuts capacity. <laughs> Extraordinary, isn't it? They've cited the, the fact that they've got these labour shortages. They're worried about surprises when customers turn up to the airport. So to manage that demand, they've cut back 1% of flights in July to serve those customers. So again, what does that do to the sort of data we're going to be watching for coming months? There's still going to be more anomalies, you'd have to say. I think you're absolutely right. But I mean, the fact that the Fed has has had until it did slight reversal in the last week, so such clarity uh, on the transient nature of this inflation, extraordinary. I mean, I live in the real world where everything, everything is inflationary at the moment. Now, whether I'm not uh, considering the base effects, whether I know Bill, I talked to uh, my electrician this weekend. You cannot get hold of copper. You cannot get hold of cement. You cannot get hold of bricks. You cannot get hold of sand. You cannot get hold of people, which is what you're alluding to there as well. So if that's all transitory, well, that's interesting as well. But I'm glad the Fed has got clarity so far out. And I, I, you mentioned high-frequency economic. What an extraordinary comment from their U.S. economist saying, do you know what? We don't like the dot plot at the moment because the Fed's looking at outcomes. Uh, it should only be looking... Uh, outcomes rather than outlook as well. So why don't we ditch the dot plot for the moment as well, which I find is extraordinary. Change the rules if you don't like them coming from some quarters as well. The other point I was going to make is about market levels. We have not had a big decline yet in market valuations in the United States. Some of the moves year to date are quite extraordinary. For instance, real estate stocks, which you alluded to there, still up 21%. Energy stocks, up 37%. Financials, despite that bath you mentioned, 6% plus handle last week, are still up 19%. In fact, the only place I can find anything down year to date is on the VIX, funnily enough, which is still down 9% year to date, despite a 32% rally last week. Um, the other point is actually on the valuation of these markets. If you think, ladies and gentlemen, that we have now come to a better level of value than we were at a week or so again, or think again, CAPE valuations, i.e. cyclically adjusted PEs, price earnings ratios, are the highest since 81. No, not 1981, 1881. According to the data I've just been looking at, the highest in more than, uh, a higher than 98% of readings we've seen since 1881 at 36.4, which was what it was at just before the most recent decline as well. That is over double the 40-year average. So my point being, ladies and gentlemen, yes, you should be aware of inflation. You should be very cognizant of what's going on there as well. But if you think these markets are now cheap, think again. Mr. Cutmore. Yeah, it's still uh, still pretty strange out there, I have to say, though. I mean, here we are with Treasury yields falling, the curve flattening, and that's not how you react to higher inflation prints. And that's the curiosity about the way the markets are responding at the moment. And I have to disagree with you, Karen. I think there was an element of surprise for a lot of practitioners. You don't get a near 4% decline in the Nikkei on a Monday morning if everybody already knew that the Fed shift was baked into the pie. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill are continuing discussions over a bipartisan infrastructure 
infrastructure bill worth just over $1 trillion. The fresh proposal is sharply lower than President Biden's initial proposal, which had originally been pitched at $4 trillion. 21 senators from both sides of the aisle are now working on that bill. Um, Still to come on the programme then, just as we head into the break here, uh, a reminder of that uh, result in the uh, French uh, regional election. The leader of France's far-right party warns of a civic disaster as a result of the low turnout. We'll tell you more about that when we come back. And for more on the Fed's hawkish pivot, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get you an update on some of the M&A news over the last uh, few hours. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman's SPAC has agreed to buy a 10% uh, stake of Vivendi's Universal Music Group. It's a deal worth $4 billion. The acquisition is the first of its kind for a blank check company. Ackman's Pershing Square Tontine Holdings will distribute shares to shareholders after the music label completes its listing on the Euronext Amsterdam later this year. U.S. private equity firm Clayton, Dublier and Rice will reportedly continue to pursue a takeover of U.K. supermarket chain W. Morrison, according to the Financial Times. That's after Morrison's rebuffed an initial approach over the weekend. The U.S. firm made a cash offer of just over £5.5 billion, which Morrison's deemed to be, quote, significantly undervalued. Uh, the interesting thing here is uh, that uh, it seems to be a buyout. I mean, a lot of the deals we've spoken about in recent years uh, tend to be big mergers and, you know, a consolidation of what we've already got. And even then, regulators have had issue with those types of structures. But also the fact that it will bring back a, a veteran of the, the retail industry in the well, UK. I mean, destroyed more value for shareholders than, than the most... Uh, in the history of uh, what the biggest grocer in the United Kingdom. Is I that who you're talking how about? I you feel about Sir Terry Lee. Hey, well, Terry. He, he screwed up in America uh, and um, got the uh, the nod from the government over buying all those convenience stores at the turn of the century, a Labour government. I think it was Tessa Jow was in charge of the department at the time. So he got that big bonus, which some of the rivals said should never have happened. But anyway, yeah, sorry, Terry Lee here. Yeah, yes, well, which is fascinating because I remember having moved to Europe around roughly the time that he resigned and then picked up and started talking about Tesco and it felt as though the strategy... Tesco, which had fresh and easy in the States. Which right. Was complete failure, it yeah? felt like it, it had this strategy. None of it worked. It was chasing growth in every quarter of the world, but none of it was particularly well executed at that stage. And if you think about how big a, a job it has been to bring the business back home to refocus on the UK and then to roll out what is now technology for the future in terms of delivery, mm. I think it's been a huge change from a company that we used to speak about 10 years ago. Yeah. I only got one thing to say about this, uh, and they had me at 85%. I, and I'm sure Jeff saw the similar number and you saw the similar number. 
and this is what makes me worried about private equity. You guys at private equity, you ladies and gentlemen, they think you're different now. You think you're about creating jobs and about creating value. and whatever. You're actually really about loading a lot of these companies up with debt still, aren't you? Can we be honest about this? I mean, I don't know. You'll, you'll, you'll probably disagree. But let's face it, 85% is my number. That is how much of the property estates that Morrison's owns at the moment. Uh, and I fear and I see a sale and lease back coming to uh, perhaps load this company up with debt as well, load it up with future obligations. And, and, and yeah, I'm sure it won't make you that future proof, will it? Let's have a look at Debenhams. Let's have a look at uh, Toys R Us. Companies that actually owned a large part of their estate got loaded up with debt and then became very vulnerable to the oscillations of the global economy. Uh, I'm sorry, I just see the same old private equity. And maybe I'm being missing something, Jeff. Um, no, I don't think you are at all. And I think that's probably uh, where we're going. And that's probably a good reason for the uh, UK government to have a, a close look at this, although I suspect it won't step into the fray. Um, the sector, of course, is, is interesting because it's so dull in a way. I mean, apart from the, the recent um, ASDA deal, of course, we haven't really seen a great deal of activity since, I think, uh, the bid for Sainsbury's by Walmart um, some years ago, which obviously got knocked down. And um, it's been quite a stable sector for a while here. Just remember, Walmart was in ASDA for over 20 years. So I guess given that we've got so much cash floating around, it's no surprise that we have some bids coming out of the woodwork here. But quite frankly, I mean, looking at the uh, financials on Morrison's, it doesn't explain why it would justify a bid at this point. This is a business that ultimately, when I looked at the uh, Jan 21 uh, quarterly numbers, the year-on-year -year figures, net profit down 86%, the net profit margin down 86% at 0.29% here. The net number was down 86% at 13 million. The revenue was down nearly 2%. Uh, and the diluted uh, EPS was down 75%. That doesn't shout compelling business opportunity necessarily, does it? So I, I suspect you're probably heading down the right path here when you talk about um, how loading the business up with debt here would be a way of uh, potentially extracting value for the private equity community. But we will see. Maybe it will smoke out some government interest here, given that uh, retaining jobs and government intervention is now the new mantra uh, in Western economies. Um, let me move on here. We'll just park the Morrison's conversation because I know we're going to be talking a lot about it over the show and over coming shows if this um, unsolicited bid continues. Um, let's move on and talk about the French election outcome here because, again, you know, the politics is raising some interesting questions about where we head next. France's centre-right party, uh, Le Republicans, has come out ahead in the first round of regional elections, according to exit polls. Marine Le Pen's far-right party is second. Uh, French President uh, Macron's uh, La République en Manche is uh, fifth. The second round runoff will be held next weekend. Charlotte, it raises um, some very interesting questions about how the uh, far-right positions itself going forward, but it also raises some curious questions about why voter turnout seems to have been so poor. Are people just fed up with the politics? 
Well, that would be certainly the question has been really the, the main question last night in the electoral night coverage of why such a low turnout and what this means for the next election, because this regional election was the last big one before the presidential one in less than a year. So there was a good moment to take the temperature of the mood of the country and see the big trends. And if anything, as you said, it's raised more questions, really, uh, from what we've learned last night, as you say, Marine Le Pen's far right party, uh, the 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 Rassemblement National has polled, that was polled ahead in first place in the polls last week, actually did much worse than expected. And while uh, the polls last week indicated that the, the, the far right party could win their first region, if not two, they've done much worse in all the regions, uh, much worse than in the 2015 election, the last election there. Uh, in PACA, in Provence, Alpes, Côte d'Azur, they have come in first place, but it looks like even there they might lose as other parties will run out of the race to leave just one party against the far right, what they call the Front Républicain, all the parties getting into one list uh, to bar the far right from winning. Another lesson that we've learned is that the centre-right is holding pretty well and they are actually came out as the first party in the country last night in this first round of the regional election. Three names have emerged in three regions that could be very much the runner-up the, the runners up for being the, the candidate for the centre-right in the presidential election. Valérie Pécresse, Xavier Bertrand and Laurent Vauquier they already mentioned that they could be in the race but now they've come very strong position, almost guaranteed to win in their own region. So we'll see certainly the race really heating up between these three names. La République En Marche, President Macron's party have done very poorly, again, showing that this party is still very much a one-man band that don't have the grassroots, that don't have the local networks that other traditional parties, even though recomposition still have uh, La République En Marche still saying this, even though the president is still quite popular in the polls, not seeing this at the local level. So as you said, the extremely poor turnout, only 33 will be really the poor question, especially young voters have not come up to a voting uh, last weekend. So that will be, we will see certainly politics trying to gather these votes going ahead before the presidential election. But if anything, more questions. The, the conclusion for the presidential election is not foregone uh, very much. So these results as I showed that, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.